0: Be seated. Let's now join our hearts together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day where we get to commemorate the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we thank you that also on this Lord's Day we get to commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as we partake in the Lord's Supper, proclaiming his death till he comes. And now, as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray that it would be a blessing to us, we'd be nourished by it, built up in it, and that your your people, the sheep of Jesus Christ, would be well fed from your word. Help me to preach in demonstration of the spirit of power, and may we all be blessed as we take heed to what we hear. And we do pray for our own nation, that what you brought to Nineveh, you would bring to the United States of America. We do pray that Reformation, Revival, would spread amongst this land where people believe you and therefore cry mightily to you for mercy. We, did, you, we know you've done it here, and you've done it in other events in history, and so we beg of you for Jesus' sake that you would have mercy upon our own land and that you would do it for the glory, honor, and praise of King Jesus, who is the King of the nations. And we pray in his name, amen. I did this last week, but I think it's helpful because this historical account flows together. And maybe some of you weren't here last week or haven't heard any of the sermons. So just to get us all back on track, because the the book of Jonah, again, fits together as one unit, one whole historical narrative. And so in my first sermon, chapter 1 to 3, we saw that the word of the Lord, or the word of Jehovah... Again, in your Bible, when you see God's name in all cap, Lord, it's his covenant name, Jehovah. And so the word of Jehovah came to Jonah. But Jonah, instead of obeying it to go to Nineveh and preach and cry out against their wickedness, he fled, he ran away, and he was running from the presence of Jehovah. But Jehovah, the God of heaven and the God of earth, tracked Jonah down, brought a great wind on the sea, and caused the mariners to be greatly afraid and to break up the ship where they were going to drown. And so they started to throw cargo off. They started to throw things that were on their ship overboard to lighten the load. And they were wondering what was happening. So every man's crying out to his God. And then they end up casting lots, and that lot falls on Jonah. And Jonah is the one responsible for this great storm. Jonah eventually tells them who he is, that he's a Hebrew, he's a Jew. He fears Jehovah, and Jehovah is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid at this, and they realize that they have to do something. Jonah recommends that they throw him overboard. At first, they don't want to do that. They want to try to get to land, and so they try the best they can to do that. Eventually, they realize there's no way we're getting back to land. There's no way that's going to work out. So therefore, we must throw him overboard. And that's what they do. They throw him overboard. And when they do that, the sea ceases from its raging, and the men go from being afraid... Exceedingly afraid to fearing Jehovah himself exceedingly. So we see that progression. Last week we saw that Jonah then was thrown into the sea. He was swallowed by a great fish. And in that great fish, he prayed to the Lord his God concerning those events and his commitment to sacrifice with thanksgiving, to pay what he has vowed. Confessing that salvation is of Jehovah and Jehovah alone. And the last verse we saw last week was that Jonah was spit out by this great fish. He was vomited out onto dry land. And so that's where we pick up this morning. We see Jonah now is back on dry land. Most likely somewhere in Israel again. He's spit out. And he is back. And now we'll see in this section, verses 1 to 10, my main point is Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents and believes, and God relents from disaster. So again, Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents and believes, and God relents from disaster. And my first point is Jonah recommissioned, And preaches. Jonah recommissioned and preaches. That's my first point. And we'll see that in particularly verses 1 to 4. Verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preached it the message that I tell you. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter that, the city on the first day walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let me give us some context on our own day. I heard this from a sermon I listened to in my preparation, but I'm making it a little bit my own. Let me tell you how dramatic we will see this account as we picture the whole thing. This, was, this would be as if in the United States of America there was an open-air preacher who went to Washington, D.C. And at Washington, D.C., he was preaching throughout the city, proclaiming to people God's judgment and the wrath that abides on an ungodly nation. And now, if he was doing it today, it would be based, if it was biblical, only on the sufficient scriptures. And if he was preaching that message, warning of coming judgment and God's wrath upon this nation, it would be, this is to parallel the entire people or many 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 people in Washington DC believe God, repent it and cried out to God mightily. It was such a great repentance it got to the president of the United States that he repented himself and he called for a public fast and humiliation for all the people to cry out to God mightily. That is how unbelievable and miraculous this conversion in Nineveh was. As if the entire area of Washington, D.C., the president himself repents and calls for a public fast. So what we're seeing here is not some small insignificant repentance. This is a massive revival, as we'll see in this text. And that gives you some type of idea in our own day to think the connection. What would this look like in our own day, if God brought repentance like this. And so again, we see in verse 1 that the word of the Lord, the word of Jehovah, came to Jonah the second time, saying, if it's true, like I said last week, again, men have different views on it, but if Jonah did actually die, and came back to life sometime in the belly of the great fish, then this was his recommissioning as a man who we could say had new life. And so he was recommissioned as someone who Jehovah didn't say, no, I'm done with you, I forgot about you, no more obedience to this command, but he recommissions him so that he would arise and go to Nineveh. So what we see here is that Jonah, commissioned by the God of heaven, is commissioned so that he would go to Nineveh, and my text says, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah was to be sent by Jehovah. This is very similar to chapter one, how it was said. He was to be sent for the purpose of preaching the message that God told him. And so Jonah is told not to go in his own initiative, not to go in his own whims, but to go according to the word of God. He was to go given a message and given a mandate from heaven to go to Nineveh for the purpose so that these people might hear the preaching of Jonah. And so we see this this recommission, this resending of Jonah, But blessed be God, unlike his first time, this time Jonah obeys the commission. He obeys the word of God, and he goes, verse 3. So Jonah rose. Last time we saw that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. This time we see that Jonah arises, and he goes to Nineveh. He obeys the command of God. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And so we see here that Jonah, unlike the first time, actually obeys what God is telling him. Actually does what God commands of him, which was all along God's purpose, was for Jonah to get to Nineveh to preach to Nineveh. That was God's purpose all along. But we do see in God's providence something very interesting. God used Jonah's disobedience actually for good. Maybe I've tried to make it clear before, but to make it more clear. God sent Jonah disobeyed, which was ungodly and wrong of him to do, but God used that disobedience to convert the mariners on the sea. So we see two, we could say almost mass conversions of Gentiles, the men on the sea and the men and women in Nineveh. So what Jonah meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring salvation to the Gentile mariners and the Gentile sinners in Nineveh. But now we see that Jonah is going to Nineveh let me just make an application here as well it's always better for us to obey god the first time we see here that it's always better to just do what he says when he tells us the first time it's not worth getting a divine chastisement from god it's it's not worth it it's not worth it so our our heart desire should always be god i want to do it the first time because i do not want your divine spanking i don't want it And therefore, I want to do what you want me to do the very first time. And so we get an example here of a graphic way that Jonah was disciplined. But our heart desire should be not God has to tell us three, four, five times. Our desire should be, God, you said it, and therefore, I want to do it. Because we don't want to receive the divine chastisement of God. Most likely, we're not going to get swallowed in a great fish. But God is going to redirect us with his divine chastisements. And as parents spank their children to correct them, God spanks us to put us on the right path. And so therefore, we see that it's always better to obey God the first time. And as much as the world makes it seem this might be especially applicable to younger people here, as much as the world makes it seem as if you do it their way that's for the best. If you talk to people who actually did it the way that the world says is best, quote unquote, you'll actually realize that they tell you it's not best. What Hollywood makes it seem like disobeying God's word is good is actually for your harm. If you talk to someone who went through that, they'll tell you it would have been much better if we did it God's way from the beginning. It would have been much better if we just said, God, you said to do this. I, don't, I might not understand all of the reasons, but I believe that you know what's best for me. Therefore, I'm going to do it your way the first time. And therefore, I'm going to say, even if I, don't, I, even if I can't connect all the dots, I believe that you know what's best. And we can take this for many different examples for sin. Fire is a beautiful gift of God. But fire isn't good outside the fireplace because then it burns down your house. And then therefore, obedience to God's word is keeping the fire in the fireplace. Disobedience is saying, why can't I have the fire wherever I want? Well, the reason is because if you do that, you'll burn down your entire house. And so therefore, beloved, our heart's desire should be, God, you know what's best, and therefore, quick obedience. Because what does God desire in his people? Not to be hearers of the word only, but to be doers of that same word. Hearers and doers. You can't do what you don't know But God doesn't want you to just hear. He wants you to hear and do. And so we see that Jonah, after he does get divine chastisement, gets the point. He eventually does get the point to go to Nineveh. He's not going to outsmart God. He's not going to get away from God. So why keep running away from him? And Jonah gets the point. And so Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly, great city. A three-day journey in extent. The way I understand that is it would take you three full days to travel through the entire city. And so Nineveh was a massive city. It was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's arch enemy. And so Jonah was to go to this great city and according to verse two, to preach to it the message that I tell you me say this as well as connected with that. He wasn't said, well, when you get there, you make up what you want. And you tell them what feels good to you, and you just tell them that, and that'll suit what I want you to do. No, it was very specific. Tell them what I told you to tell them. This is where preachers get in trouble, because it's the temptation for preachers every preacher can feel this in different ways, is I have to make something new because then it'll be interesting to people to listen to. If I bring something new and fresh, maybe something they have never heard of before, then they'll actually listen. That is a temptation for a preacher because you want people to listen when you're preaching. So it's a temptation to say, if I say something clever, maybe they'll listen. But if you want to be a God-blessed preacher, you say nothing more, nothing less than what God has said in his word. You don't make it creative for people because if people don't want God's word, there's nothing you can give them. Because when, what are we called, when are we called to preach the word? In season and out of season. And there is no other season. There is no other season. In and out. That's the only type of seasons there are. When people want to hear it, you preach it. When they don't want to hear it, you preach it. Because there is no other season. So Jonah wasn't to say, you know what? What could I do? To make them believe my message. What what could I say in a way to make it more clever? So maybe they would believe what I had to say. Think about the logic of that as we think about Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. I've used this example in another sermon up in Pennsylvania that wouldn't have been so foolish of Ezekiel to say, if only I can have a creative message and maybe change my dress and do something different so that I relate with the people. Well, you would say to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, these people are dead. They're dead bones. No matter what you do, they're not going to believe unless God by his spirit blows upon them. And so therefore, it only made sense for Ezekiel to say, I will prophesy this, these dry bones, and Lord, you know if they'll come back to life. And that's what it is for every preacher of the word of God, particularly as he's preaching to lost men and women. He is preaching to dry bones that will never ever believe because they're dead unless God breathes upon them. So it's utterly foolish to say I can be creative because at the end of the day, it's only God who can bring the increase. Some water, some plant, but God alone brings the increase. And so therefore, Shona was to go and preach to it, Nineveh, The message that I, God is speaking, that I tell you. That I tell you. And then verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah now enters the city of Nineveh. He goes into Nineveh. And he goes in and he cries out. He preaches to Nineveh. And we see these eight words. I don't think this is all that he said. But these eight words are a summary of his message. Yet, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why I say this can't be all that he said is because he had to have told them that What God is he speaking on behalf of? So they understood that he was speaking from and through the God of heaven, Jehovah himself, the God of Israel, the God who made the world and all things therein. So he's speaking as a messenger of the true God, the God of Israel. We also see in the New Testament that Jonah himself was a sign. So it's very interesting. Maybe they saw or he told them about his encounter in the great fish. It's also possible, too, that the 40 days struck them because they probably had some type of understanding of the flood account, and the 40 days and the 40 nights might have hit them connected with the 40 days. But Jonah's message preeminently was a message of judgments. Preeminently was a message of judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was a message that God's judgment was coming upon this wicked city. We saw in chapter 1 that God said to go to Nineveh for the purpose of crying out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so Nineveh was a very, very wicked city. There was much evil going on in Nineveh. We see expressly said in verse 8, one of the things that the king highlights is that the men there should turn from the violence that is in their hands. So there must have been much physical violence and brutality in that culture. And so this was the call, that 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And this is very similar to how preaching has to be today, especially out on the open air. So as I'm preaching yesterday at Ocean City, we can't really preach much about Christ until they understand judgment. Because in our culture, there is no concept of why a person needs Christ unless they understand the judgment of God. So there has to be much heavy emphasis on sin and death and judgment to help people even have a category for why they need salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so similar to these people, they needed the reminder that judgment is coming upon you, and therefore that is why you need deliverance. We make this point as well in application. If you tell people that the reason why they need Jesus is because their life is not going so well, or they don't have all the joy that they would want, or they don't have all the material blessings that they could get, or they don't have X, Y, or Z in this temporal life, what you're going to think is I have to pray so they have a bad experience and then I can share the gospel to them. Have you ever thought that? If only they went through suffering, then they could maybe, maybe then I could give the gospel to them. Because what we're thinking when we think that is their greatest problem is temporal suffering and not the wrath that is to come. So whether someone has $10 million and is living with no outward stress, quote-unquote, or whether they are a homeless person on the street, the primary message is you need to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. That is why we don't say, you know what, this person is going, their, their life is too good. They don't need the gospel because it's appointed for men to die once and after that the judgment's. And some of you might know Ray Comfort's testimony. Some of you might not. But Ray Comfort had a very prosperous life before his conversion. We could put it like that. And he was doing well externally. But what got Ray Comfort, and this is why his ministry is the way it is, is what got Ray Comfort is, I am going to die, and all this is going to be taken from me. And the reality of death was so great to him that it led him to realize, all this is vanity if this is ultimately what my hope is in. And therefore, the fear of death and judgment was what brought Ray Christ. And so therefore, this is ultimately what the gospel is about. Does the gospel bring people joy and peace and believing? Of course. Does it give people hope and God in the world? Of course. But as a byproduct of their greatest need being answered, being saved from sin and damnation. All those other things are byproducts of the greatest need of having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me speak to you here if you're not in Christ, if you're not saved, if you know maybe what I've been saying so far doesn't connect with you, you're not understanding what I'm saying, or maybe you are at different points. But your greatest need is to be delivered from your sin and the judgment that is due your sin because God is good. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. The reason why God judges sin is because he's good. If God was not good, he wouldn't care about sin. He would say, you know what, you do do whatever you want, and that's fine. But because God is perfectly good, and because his law is perfectly good, any violation of his moral law is an offense against a good God who gives good laws. And so therefore, every time we sin, God, who is just, must punish that sin. Let me make it more specific. He must punish your sin, and he must punish my sin. Or he's not good. Or he is not good. And so therefore, your greatest dilemma in life, your greatest problem is in life, is that if you are not in Christ, if you're not trusting Jesus, if your hope is not in him, Your greatest problem is God is your enemy and you are God's enemy. And there is no hope for you unless by the grace of God you are brought, like Nineveh will see, to believe God's word and trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word over your life right now, if you're not in Christ, is yet when you die, the judgment. And so for you, the gospel call is that you will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus, who is God manifested in the flesh, born of the virgin, so he, doesn't, he is not stained with sin. The one who dies upon the cross to bear the sin of all of his people. The one who rises again from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And the one who ascended on high and the one who's coming back to judge the living and the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must trust him so that you can be delivered from the wrath that is to come. And then my second point is the people of Nineveh repent and believe. That's my second point. The people of Nineveh repent and believe. The people of Nineveh repent and believe. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Such a powerful way it's described here. The people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh, they heard the message, and it doesn't say they believed Jonah it says they believed God. When they heard the message from Jonah, they heard it as God from heaven speaking to them through his sent prophet. So when they heard the word of Jonah, they heard the word of Jehovah. When they heard what Jonah had to say, they were hearing what God had to say. And this is very similar to the text in 1 Thessalonians. That when Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, when we preached to you, you heard what we said to you, not as the word of men, But as it is in truth the word of God. That's how they heard it. They believed God Himself. Think about it too. This great, powerful city. This city that was great in so many ways in terms of externally and and materially. They could have said, Jonah, what in the world are you doing? Let's take his head off. They could have they could have said off with this guy's head. We don't want to hear this. This is messing with our peace. We don't want to hear anything about judgment. Get rid of this guy, or they could have laughed at him. Who is this guy saying judgment is coming? What's wrong with him? Someone has to, we got to get this guy out of our city. They could have responded in so many ways, mocking, laughing. They could have killed him. They could have said, we're, we're, we don't want to hear this. We're, we're perfectly fine. We don't, we don't want to hear what God has to say to us. We're fine. But they respond in a different way. They believed God. That is the foundation of salvation. A person goes from believing in sin and self to believing in God and trusting in him. A person, when they are converted, they begin to believe. When God God gives threatenings in his word, he's telling the truth. When God warns of coming judgment, he is telling the truth. When God promises mercy, he is telling the truth. When God says that there is wrath to be delivered from, he is telling the truth. When God promises that whosoever believes upon Christ will not perish but have everlasting life, he is telling the truth. A person goes from believing, not believing God to believing God, as we see pictured in the people of Nineveh. They believe God. In light of believing God, they proclaim a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This was a massive revival. A massive revival in Nineveh, where it implies that at the very least, almost everyone in the entire city believed God. That's what it means when it says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. That I almost take it that everyone believed God, because we see that similar language in the New Covenant that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And we take that as everyone in the new covenant knows God. And so I have good reason to suspect that it might have been the entire city of Nineveh that believed God, from the greatest of them to the very least of them. Can I say that dogmatically? No. But with that language of from the greatest to the least, it definitely implies at the very least a massive revival amongst this people. The people of Nineveh, they believe God. They proclaim a fast. They put sackcloth on, which is a picture of, in that culture, of repentance, of mourning over sin, of a wailing, even just in the heart, over their sin. They proclaim a fast. They put on sackcloth as a picture of their repentance. And again, it was from the greatest of them To the least of them. So I've I've said this as I was describing going from unbelief to belief, but again, faith is the empty hand of a person clinging to the God of heaven for mercy. True faith says to God from the heart nothing I could bring to you, and therefore my only hope is to cling to to you in desperation. That is what saving faith is. It's a clinging to God. Now, with even more revelation than we have now, even though the Old Testament saints were looking forward to Christ, most definitely, we cling to God, especially in and through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the old hymn puts it very well, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. And then it goes on to say, Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so this is what genuine faith is. And we see that pictured in the people of Nineveh. They believe God. And this is also the foundation for, if you are a child of God, this is the foundation for all your obedience the reason why we disobey at the root of it. There's fruit sins and then there's root sins. One of the key root sins is unbelief. We say when we disobey that I know better than God. We are not believing his promises at that moment and therefore we are living in such a way of saying, God, at this moment I know what is best for my life. True obedience to God's word says God I believe that what you say is best. Going back to what I was saying earlier about obeying the word of God the first time. obedience starts by saying, God, I trust that my decisions, if they are based on your word, are what is best for me and preeminently brings you the most glory. And so any true obedience that actually pleases God, because without faith, it's impossible to please God, must be, flow out of a heart that trusts God, believes his word, trusts that he knows what's best, and in light of that, obeys his commandments. So you have to ask yourself the question, when you disobey, what commandment, or excuse me, what are you not believing from God? When you get angry, are you believing that angry without a cause? Are you believing that somehow vengeance now belongs to you? When you lust, are you believing that somehow that will satisfy you? When you're being discontent, are you believing that somehow God doesn't know what's best for you and he's holding something back from you? You have to ask yourself the question, because if you don't get to the root of the issue, you'll never really root out that sin. You have to get to the root of the problem and say, what am I not believing when I give into this temptation? What, what am I not trusting in about God or his word that makes this such a temptation to me? You have to ask yourself the question, what am I not believing? Where am I believing a lie? Where am I believing that's something that is not true and therefore living according to my own desires? You have to ask yourself that question. The people proclaimed a fast. They put sackcloth on from the greatest of them to the least of them because they believed God. Because of that, all these other things that happened, even with the king, all these other things that happened, are the overflow of believing in God himself. Now my third point, the king of Nineveh calls for a time of, maybe you aren't familiar with this phrase, but I'll try to acquaint you with it, public humiliation. The king of Nineveh calls for a time of public humiliation. And we see that from verses 6 and 9. I'll read those Verse 6, Then the word word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? The king of Nineveh calls for a time of public humiliation. So we see that Jonah's preaching spread far and wide. The way this is said, it seems to be that the king of Nineveh didn't hear Jonah himself But word spread, Jonah's message spread throughout the entire region that even the king of Nineveh heard, probably secondhand, what Jonah was saying. The king of Nineveh, instead of mocking and laughing, also believes God, and therefore he arises from his throne, he lays aside his robe, and he covers himself with sackcloth and sits in ashes. And in light of that, because of his authority, he calls for a public fast throughout Nineveh so that the people would not eat or drink for the purpose, not just so they would do it because it would be good, but doing it so that the focus would go from bread and water to crying mightily to God. That's really the focus of why we fast. If if we fast, we fast To give up something so that our focus might be more directed in a unique way to God. And that's what this fast is all about. Set aside food and drink so that you can focus upon God. This would be as if the president, again, if the president of the United States repented and called for the people of the United States to humble themselves and call out to God for mercy. If he said to the United States people, let us all fast and let us cry to God mightily that he might have mercy upon us. That would be the magnitude of what is happening here. Because if Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, obviously what is happening in Nineveh is affecting all of Assyria. And so he's calling that the people would have a public fast. Be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence of his hands. We see here that the king uses his power as the king to call for a public fast. It's not my desire now to talk about political theory or the, the relation of nations and God, but I do want to say this. Nineveh was a non-covenanted nation. Hopefully we all understand that. Meaning, they were not Israel in a special covenant with God. So they're very much like United States of America. America is not God's nation. America is not covenanted with God. The church of Jesus Christ is the covenanted holy nation. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But America, like Nineveh, is still under obligation to honor the true and living God. And God will hold the deacons of himself. That's what the word is in Romans 13. They're deacons or ministers or servants of God. They will be held responsible before God in the way they carry out justice in the United States. These men were guilty. The leaders were guilty there because they were executing wicked decrees. And therefore, that was one of the reasons why Nineveh was going to be overthrown. And so God brought judgment was bringing judgment, was commanding that judgment was going to come. And so the king of Nineveh turned from his evil way and commanded the people to turn from their evil way. And so we see this powerful example of not only the people in the population, but the leader himself, the king, repents, believes, and calls for a public humiliation. But let me... Let me turn your attention to that phrase. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king of Nineveh highlights broadly and then more specifically. First, that the people would turn from their evil way, which is very generic. That the people would, because they believe God, they would turn from their evil way. And that they would give up the violence that is in their hands. So let me just make this practical. What would it look like? What should we pray for when we pray that this would happen to the United States of America? And God can do it. Hopefully you're not in here saying, nah, this can never happen. This is too hard for God. Let's never get to the point. God can do this tomorrow if he wanted to. And so what should we be praying? When we pray, that? what would revival look like in our nation? One, it would look like the idolatry of our nation will be repented of, first and foremost. We would say any god besides the God of heaven and earth, the God of holy Scripture, is an idol, and we must worship Him and Him alone. That would be foundational. I'm not getting into all the re- how they would enforce and all that, but there would at least be acknowledgement. I'm not getting into all the political theory; I'm staying away from that. But at the very least, there would be a calling that the God of heaven is the true God. Second, there would be a desire to get rid of all the things that God calls an abomination. Abortion would be outlawed. Sodomy would be forbidden in the sense of called marriage. These type of things. The people would come to say, we must submit to the God of heaven. There would be massive revival in the sense if it was like Nineveh, and there would be a desire to acknowledge the God of heaven and to execute according to his righteous law. And so we see this powerful Reality that the king was commanding the people to turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is connected with the text in Isaiah where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord for he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly Pardon. And so they turn from their evil way. But verse 9 is very interesting because it shows us what Jonah's preaching was like a little bit more. Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? What is implied there is Jonah in his preaching didn't necessarily have a lot of calls for mercy. Didn't necessarily say, if you repent, you will receive mercy. Because the king says, who can tell if? Who knows if we do repent, if we do believe, if we do turn from our evil way, that God might have mercy upon us and turn from his fierce anger. How can we know if God might do this? We aren't, we aren't for sure. But if he brought his word to us, he gave us 40 days until he's actually gonna bring us, bring the destruction, he might have mercy upon us if we call upon him mightily. If we actually confess and forsake and turn from our evil way out of believing in God, maybe he will relent from his great and fierce anger. And if any of you are not sure if this was genuine repentance, we see from the Lord Jesus Christ himself that it was. In verse 41 of Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Noah, and indeed a greater than at the preaching of Jonah, excuse me, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself says about the men of Nineveh that they repented at Jonah's preaching, and therefore they will conbe- condemn those cities that Jesus preached to that did not repent. And then we see my fourth point in verse ten. Then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. God saw their faith and their repentance and God relented from his disaster. Some of you who are thinking theologically and rightfully so, this almost seems as if God changed his mind. God was going to do it. And then he chose not to, as if what they did was the deciding factor, and God changed because of this, as if God was going to do something and change. Well, Let me just say this to help you maybe in your Bible reading. I'm going to use two big words, but I'm going to define them. We have in our Bibles anthropomorphic language, which is language when God uses human body parts to describe himself. God says he has, an, has eyes, an ears, a mouth, etc., a face. But we know God is a spirit and has not a body like man. And so when God uses that, he's using human characteristics to describe something about himself, but not truly, really, in himself, because, again, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. We learn that in our kids' catechism. But there's also another, there's another category of that, which is called, which is less familiar, anthropopathic language, which is when God takes upon himself human emotions and passions and feelings, to describe in human language something about what he is doing. And so in the Old King James, this actually uses the word repent. Or in Genesis 6, God repented. But we know that God is not a man that he should repent, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. So the way we understand this is God is using as Calvin, John Calvin would say, baby talk, to help us understand something about his dealings. But because God is without body, without parts, and without passions. Therefore, God, is ne- God never changes. God is immutable. He's sovereign. And so therefore, the same God who threatened judgment was the same God who decreed that they would repent and believe. And the same God who decreed that he would relent from disaster. So it was not, I don't want you to hear this saying, God was going to judge them. They did this and God said, oh, I have to change my plan now. I have to fix things up now because of their change. It wasn't anything like that. God saw their works, and based on what his sovereign purpose was, he relented from disaster. He relented from disaster. And he did not bring it upon them. Again, that was his sovereign purpose. God didn't have to send Jonah to Nineveh. God was the one, because we believe in the sovereignty of God, God was the one who granted them repentance and faith. And God is the one who chose in his sovereign good pleasure to relent from disaster. Again, God is not a man that he should lie nor the Son of Man, that he should repent. God is not any of those things. And the Lord our God does not change in any way. The Father of lights is without variation or shadow due of turning. There is no change in God. And so when you read your Bible, when you see God has eyes, ears, mouth, and nose, do you assume that, oh, God must actually have eyes, ears, mouth, and nose? No. You hear that and you say, God is describing something as a God who is a spirit. And so you should do the same thing when you see human emotions of repentance or changing God's mind or these feelings that you see. You should do the same thing and say, God is describing something about himself, but it's not actually true in the ultimate sense in God. Because let me just say it like this as well to help you. There is nothing that comes upon God. Well, let me say this first. This would be more helpful. When we talk about passions or emotions, these are emotions in us. Something comes upon us, we are affected by it, and therefore we respond. We see a homeless person, it comes upon us, an emotion, and we are affected by that, and therefore we respond. God isn't like that. Nothing comes upon God and affects him, and therefore he responds because he's affected by his creature. There is no way to affect God. Nothing comes upon the Almighty and changes him. And so therefore we change in relationship to God. God doesn't change in relationship to us. So we go from under wrath to under grace, but who changes? We do, not God. They go from under God's judgment to under wrath, but they change because they go from darkness to light. They're the one who changes, not God. Because again, my friends, God is without variation and shadow of turning. This is very important to understand this because there are movements out there today. The most radical one is open theism, where they actually believe God doesn't know the future and God does change his mind and God does actually repent in the same way we do. And those things, but the challenge is there's a slippery slope as well if we don't hold tenaciously that God is without body, parts, and passions. Because again, God is not a man that he should repent. And so what we see here is God executing his sovereign purpose in relenting from disaster. And so we see the wonderful truth of God's mercy to Nineveh. Let me bring this to a few concluding application points. Again, if you're here and you're not in Christ, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God will relent from disaster upon you. That is the promise of the gospel. God will relent from disaster upon you. You will go from being under wrath to under grace because you'll change in relationship to God. And God will show you mercy if you call upon him, and even if you don't know the words to say, if you merely say something as simple as, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God will relent from disaster upon you. And we don't want you here, any believer here doesn't want you to be a monument of God's wrath. We want you to be a monument of God's mercy. We want you to be a vessel of God's mercy. And therefore, if you cry out to God mightily, that he would forgive your sins. For Jesus' sake, God will relent because we know we have a promise. They didn't necessarily have a promise. We have a promise that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall, will be saved. And so call upon him while he's near, and God will show you mercy. And for us, if you're a child of God, the application from earlier. It's always best to obey God the first time. I won't labor that because I labored it earlier. But again, it's always good to obey God the first time. And let me ask you, beloved, have you ever prayed that God would bring this upon America? Have you ever prayed that God would bring revival? Have you ever prayed that God would, from the top down, bring repentance, reformation, and true faith in the true God? Sometimes I think, even in my own heart, that I can have a tendency that that can't happen. But we must mortify those and we must cry mightily to the God of heaven that he would bring this upon our own lands. Because USA is very much like Assyria, not covenanted with God, but a nation that's still under God's authority. And therefore, we should cry to God that he would have mercy and pity upon this nation. That what he did in Nineveh, he would do in the United States of America that he would bring true revival to our land, that he would really bring people to believe in him and therefore turn from their evil way. And so one of the greatest ways we can apply this is praying for our own nation. And then also praying. This could sound self-serving, but I don't mean it this way. Praying for people who are out like Jonah in a non-covenanted nation bringing the gospel in the public square that God would cause people who hear it in the public square to believe God and therefore to turn from their evil way. And so may we cry to the God of heaven that he might have compassion and relent from disaster upon our own nation. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray you would apply it to our hearts. And we do pray for our own nation that you would have compassion upon this nation and you would have pity bringing people to repentance and faith in you.